a four-part series on four truths to live by. And today we're exploring the idea of happiness. What does it mean to be happy? Where do we find it? Happiness, as you know, is something that is much discussed in our culture these days, particularly with the increase in awareness of mental health issues which are um, increasing exponentially uh, and that's inextricably linked to the idea of happiness. Everyone has an opinion on happiness, it's something we think about a lot. So I'm going to start off this morning by doing a bit of a vox pop, um, a bit of a um, random ask you what you think of happiness. So firstly I'm going to ask Jono, what's your idea of happiness? Um, mine's a simple one. I think happiness for me would be just staying in bed. Staying in bed, sleeping as long as I can. Um, if it's not sleeping in bed, it'll be in bed still, watching stuff, reading stuff, but no matter what, in bed. <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you, John. Yeah. Jess. I feel happy when I have a day off. I go to a local cafe, read my Bible and pray, and then read a fantasy novel book. Very good. Yeah, I can relate to that. I love going to coffee shops and reading. Um, who else can I pick on? Matt, I was very impressed by your interview. <laughs> Let, let's hear some more of your wisdom. Happiness, I think uh, quality time with like friends and and that youth group connection, seven people. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank, thanks very much. That was, that was great. I, I also polled a few more friends um, what they thought of happiness. Um, and this is what they had to say. So, firstly, I asked Lady Gaga. I need to tell her this. What do you think about happiness? And she said, you have to be unique and different and shine in your own way. Hold on to this belief for yourself. Then David and Victoria Beckham. Uh, now, they're, they're a little bit uh, not unique, but um, different to a lot of celebrities in that they've been married for quite a long time by celebrity standards and they've managed to stay married. This is what they said. They said, try to find love that you will see, that will see you through the, the eye of the storm. And then there's Robert Downey Jr., who you may know from Iron Man, uh, playing Tony Stark. He said, listen, smile, agree, then do whatever blank you're going to do anyway. Uh, so that's his take on life. Then there's Sandra Bullock. She said, I think most of us are raised with preconceived notions of the choices we're supposed to make. We waste so much time making decisions based on someone else's idea of our happiness. What will make you a good citizen or a good wife or daughter or actress? Nobody says, just be happy, go and be a cobbler or, or go and live with goats. So her advice is to go and find a goat to live with. Now, of course, this is uh, a highly selective um, sample but just from these examples, I wonder if you can notice a bit of a pattern in the types of answers, leaving aside staying in bed or 
um, doing as little as possible that we heard earlier. I wonder, is there a pattern you can discern in what these people say? Apart from the Beckhams, the other three celebrities, that is, were all about expressing themselves as individuals, weren't they? Um, Do what you want without worrying about expectations. You do you. And then the Beckhams talked about love. Having a stable, reliable love that you can rely on. We might put it in terms of having unconditional love in your life. Now I'm going to summarise what we've heard in this small sample as in two categories. Uh, In this very selective, unscientific study, I'm going to conclude that people talk about finding happiness in two main ways. In self-fulfilment and in love. Self-fulfilment and in love. In being loved and in loving. Now I don't claim to be able to draw any real conclusions from this sample size but still I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I reckon this is actually a pretty accurate description of how our culture views happiness. Now we're painting in very broad brush strokes and we could talk about a whole lot of other things that people might talk about like success as Bella did in the interview, enjoyment, entertainment, working for a good cause, lots of things we could throw in there. But even then I think most of them can come down to those two categories of self-fulfillment or love. Today I want to spend some time looking at these two ways that we find happiness. We're going to look at the very modern way that we look at finding identity, meaning and value by looking inwardly to ourselves. And then we're going to look at our need for love and for human community and connection. And I'm going to suggest that these two things are actually pulling against each other. And so our quest for self-fulfillment ends up leaving us isolated and lonely. And again, Bella alluded to that uh, in her interview. We feel lonely as we ditch our connection with others. And then finally, we're going to see what the Bible says. Look again at the passage we had read out to us. To see that it's only when we look outside of ourselves and not inside that we find fulfilment. And with that comes connection and belonging to God and then to other people. So that's where we're going this morning. Why don't you pray with me as we begin. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who gives us our ultimate sense of fulfilment and identity and satisfaction and love that that comes from outside of ourselves, not from within. We pray as we explore that this morning that you would speak to us, comfort us and challenge us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got three points this morning as usual. The first point is that we look for happiness today in our culture by blazing our own trail, by looking for self-fulfilment. 
Now, before we go on, I'm going to use terms like self-fulfillment, finding our identity, more than the actual word happiness, because I think they're the things that we really look for when we think about happiness, not so much just kind of fleeting enjoyment, but in, in these things of, self, of self-fulfillment, identity, purpose. Let's look at a couple of other examples of the way people think about finding happiness. I just found this uh, on a random internet search. De- Deborah Smoos is a, I think she calls herself a life coach. says there, Deborah Smoos, create a life you love. This is what she says about finding happy. What? <laughs> I, did, I did have a blurb. I'll read it out. I did have it written down. This is what Deborah Smoos says. She says, we each have a little drum beating in our souls meant to guide us towards the most nourishing path for our lives. Listening to that inner voice can be challenging. However, if you want to be happy, you must be willing to dance to the beat of your own drum. The path to true happiness demands we live life on our own terms. Ultimately, it is up to us to ignore them. We must find our own songs, bang on our own drum and dance to the beat of the music that comes from our own souls. Um, so that's Deborah Smooth's advice. You've got to look within and play your own music. And then there's Elsa in Frozen. Elsa says, it's, uh, sings famously, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules. For me, I'm free. So again, she gets to define her own path in life and find her own, uh, her own path to happiness. Now, before we go on, it's important to say that the modern drive to self-fulfillment isn't all bad. It actually comes as a reaction against a past era where, by and large, society told us who we should be and told us our identity and defined us. So if you were born a lowly manual worker, you were defined by that and that was a value placed on you and you had very little choice in the path that life took you. Basically, your path was chosen for you. Even today, in many parts of the world, such as Afghanistan, if you're a woman living in Afghanistan under the Taliban, you will live under a straitjacket of expectations. Your future will be defined by your sex, the fact that you're a woman, and you will probably be robbed of the chance of even going to school. The reaction against that, by insisting that we can shape and fulfil Uh, who we are, at least to an extent, as individuals, that's a good and a necessary thing to fight against this straitjacket. But what we've done in our culture is we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We've overreacted by throwing out anything outside of ourselves that might tell us who we are and what our place in the world is. We are told that to be authentic, true to myself, 
I have to create my own identity. I do that by forging my own path, blazing my own trail. But in doing that, we stop listening to everything else that tells us this is what gives you identity. We like someone going on a bushwalk, wanting to get to a mountain. We know we've got to travel north um, to get there, but then we leave the well-worn path. We say, paths are for wusses. I don't want a path, I'm going to find my own way. And then we say, who needs a compass? A compass is restrictive and oppressive and I don't need to find which way is north. And so what we end up doing is beating our own path and going around in circles rather than ever getting to the destination. You see, we actually need something outside of ourselves to say, Marshall, you are this. Or you are loved. We can't find out who we are and find a sense of belonging in this world and so find happiness without there being a true north outside of ourselves that we can look for for direction. We can tell ourselves all we like that we are awesome, that we are kind and loving, that we are natural comedians perhaps, that we are the life of the party. We can dream anything we like about ourselves. But at the end of the day, what actually counts is the assessment that comes outside of ourselves, the assessment of others. I only really know if, if I'm loving if others see I love them and respond to my love. I only really know if I'm a comedian if someone actually laughs at my jokes. Tim Keller, the late American pastor and writer, tells the story of a young man that he counselled. This young man said whenever he asked his parents for guidance, they said, we just want you to be who you truly want to be. Whatever that, whatever that is, that will be okay with us. Now, on one level, that sounds good, doesn't it? That it's expressing that his parents accept him for whoever he decides to be, for whatever choices he makes in life. But the man complained that actually that advice just left him feeling unloved. He wanted his parents to give him a sense of where his true north was. He wanted them to give him a guide for the type of life that would make them proud of him. And this is what he said. No one can tell yourself I'm okay. I needed someone to tell me that's the right thing to do. I'm proud of you. He needed that to come outside of himself. And we can't tell ourselves, I'm okay. We need someone outside of ourselves to tell us we are loved, we are valued, we have a fixed and certain place in this world. And as we saw last week, having to create our own identity 
puts a terrible burden on us because we feel like we've got to make ourselves stand out of the crowd. We've got to be someone special. We've got to be so- do something spectacular to become worthwhile. But what if there was someone who says that we have a fixed and true identity? What if there is someone who says we are loved and valued beyond measure? And I'm not talking about other people here who might like us one day and then ditch us the next day. I'm talking about someone far more significant. Someone whose assessment of us really does matter. And really is true. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. But first, in my second point, we're going to see that self-fulfillment comes at a high price. Self-fulfillment comes at a high price. As I said earlier, it pulls against our need for love and connection with others. The quest for self-fulfillment insists that we make ourselves, we define ourselves alone and we cut ourselves off from other people by insisting that we stand alone as individuals. But friends, we are made for community. We were made for each other. No one is an island. Self-fulfillment is a path to loneliness. That's our second point. You may have heard the poem, a very famous poem by John Donne, uh, the English poet who lived uh, a number of centuries ago. He writes, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory, can't say the word, promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Today, we like to think that we are an island, that we stand like the rock of Gibraltar against the tides of human opinion and fashion. But as John Donne says, all of us are involved in mankind or humankind, whether we like it or not. We are all a piece of the continent, part of the main. We were created to be social creatures. We can't pretend to just exist for ourselves, by ourselves. Throughout human history, we've always been social creatures. If we'd been born at any other time in history before the 1960s, then our family, our work, our church, the groups we belong to would have in large part defined who we are and what our place in the world is. But now we're trying to rip ourselves from that social fabric and stand alone in the world. But it doesn't work because we were never made, never meant to be alone. We need each other. 
A US Department of Health study recently concluded that playing cards or drinking coffee just once a week with at least one other person has the equivalent benefits for your health as giving up smoking a pack a day. That's huge. In 2016, a survey in the UK of millennials found that the greatest fear of millennials was loneliness. American sociologist Robert Bellar argues that since the 1960s, as our culture has emphasised the I over the we, we have been damaged, he says. We have been damaged by the destruction of the subtle ties that bind human beings to one another, leaving them frightened and alone. Another commentator, a British commentator, Jonathan Sachs, says that the human condition is overwhelmingly about relationships, about faithfulness, staying true, loyal and committed to one another, despite all the tensions, all the multiple ways in which we fall short. But what we've done is we've turned things on their heads and said that the human condition is now all about me and my self-fulfilment. And relationships aren't about faithfulness now, but about how they meet my needs. We don't have to look far to see the cost of that. We could go on about all the evidence in the, uh, of community breakdown uh, and increased isolation of people in our community, but I'm not going to go on about that because I suspect you don't need convincing of that because we all live with that day to day. We all see that around us. But just one story that I think illustrates the cost of us focusing on the self rather than others. Julie and I met someone we'll call Rose uh, a week or so ago down at Nawi at the 7-Eleven. Rose is a single lady, I'm guessing in her 60s. She had a fall and was very disoriented and flustered. She had no money. Her ex-flatmate had emptied her bank account while she had been in hospital. Uh, we took her home. She just lived around the corner. We found out that she doesn't have a fridge or a microwave, uh, so she can't store any perishable food. She's also quite disabled, so she has trouble getting around. She relies on catching a taxi or an Uber to get anywhere. Now, we don't know Rose's, story, Rose's full story. Uh, we know that she has some daughters, but it doesn't look like they're really in her life now. <laughs> doesn't seem to have any family or friends apart from one. She's pretty much completely on her own. Now, there might be all sorts of reasons why Rose is in the predicament she is. And it may be too simplistic just to blame our individualistic society on, on where she's at. But the reality is that stories like Rose's are becoming more and more common because we are becoming more and more isolated from each other. We're looking out less and less for our neighbours as the centre of gravity falls squarely on me, on my own, rather than us together. And I want to suggest that even in church, 
we are affected by that culture. Yes, I believe that the church really is different to the world, that, it, that the church really does offer real community and it really is countercultural. But still, the church is filled by children of our culture. Self-fulfillment is in the air that we breathe and we cannot but be affected by that. Sadly, over the years, I've had a number of people tell me that they're going to leave the church. And almost always, their reasons for leaving begin with I. I haven't got many friends. I don't get a lot out of it. I don't feel included. I don't feel like it's meeting my needs. Now, all these things are legitimate issues and I don't want to downplay them. But I do want to suggest that these statements reveal that we often see church as being about me primarily. What I can get out of it. And that that's the natural, inevitable result of living in a culture that insists, yes, it is all about me. Yes, it is all about me. But in our third point, we're going to see that that's not the way that we were created to be. And it's the church where God showed the world how things are meant to be. Through Jesus, God has brought restoration to relationship, fulfilment in belonging. The Bible gives us a very different vision for finding happiness. And it comes from belonging. Belonging to God and then flowing out from that, belonging to each other. Firstly, let's look at belonging to God. The passage we had read to us comes from the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a place, a church in a place called Ephesus. Paul's message in this letter is to explain to them what God has done for them and then what that means in their relationship together, particularly between two, two groups of people who make up the church, Greeks and Jews, two very different groups of people. Paul starts out at the beginning of chapter 2, before the part we had read, to say that the believer in Jesus now belongs to God. And he says this, this is chapter 2, verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, we haven't got time to go into this in any depth, but just to summarise, what this is saying is that Paul says because God loves us, he made us alive with Jesus and he raised us up from the dead. He resurrected us with Jesus. It's talking about Jesus' death on the cross, that he died for our sins, that he brought us forgiveness and restoration in our relationship with God. 
I just want to focus on verse 4. It is because of God's great love for us that he sent Jesus. God says that we belong to him. He loves us and values us so much that he sent Jesus for us. And that's where we get our identity. That's our true north that comes from outside of us. It's like a young child who is lonely or sad. Maybe you've probably had this experience if you've got children of your own. They're, they need comforting. Her parent runs up to her and puts his arms around her and says, I love you. Contrast that to the same little girl trying to comfort herself with self-talk, saying, I am valuable, I love myself. Which one do you think is more meaningful? Now you might say, oh, that's silly, Marshall, we're not little children. We're grown-ups here. But I want to suggest that actually we are all still very much like that little girl that actually we all need a heavenly father to tell us, I love you. I love you. I value you. You belong to me. And that news that God loves us greatly, that he has been rich in mercy towards us, that he sent his son Jesus to the cross for us. That's our true north. That's where we find identity and meaning and fulfilment. Instead of beating our own path and going round and round in circles, God has showed us the way to go. He has showed us that it's in a loving relationship with him that we find fulfilment and happiness. We were created to find belonging in God. And then secondly, flowing out of that, we find a sense of belonging in community with each other. When Jesus died for us, he brought us back into relationship with God and with each other. And that's what Paul is talking about in our passage in Ephesians 2. And we come now to the to the part we had read to us. Let's look at it again. Ephesians 2 from verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death the hostility. No, I've got another slide. Oh, okay, that's where we end. Uh, by which he put to death the hostility. So much again in that passage that we can't go into today, but just to bring out a couple of things says in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace. 
Jesus is our peace. Before he came, we weren't at peace. We weren't at peace with God and we weren't at peace with each other. And that's because of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is basically our insistence on saying that we are in charge and not God. It doesn't take much imagination to link that to the idea of seeking self-fulfilment, does it? Sin says that I am in charge, I am the centre of my life. Verse 16 says that these group, two groups of people we mentioned before, remember Greeks and Gentiles in the Ephesian church, they are now reconciled to God through the cross. That means that their sin has been dealt with. And because of that, they're also reconciled with each other, reconciled to God and they're reconciled with each other. Because sin not only affects our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with each other. Brings hostility between us and each other as well as between us and God. How does that work? Now the way that works is like this. I've experienced forgiveness from God because Jesus died for my sins. I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. But Jesus died for me anyway as a free act of grace and kindness. That then frees me to forgive others. They may not deserve to be forgiven either, but I can forgive them anyway because I've been forgiven by God. What this passage in Ephesians is telling us is that when we trust in Jesus, not only do we belong to him as individuals, but more significantly, we belong to him as a church, communally. The Bible describes us as Christ's body. The church is the body of Christ. We equally belong to each other. And in that, we are different to the world. I said earlier that the church is a counterculture. That's because it find, we find our identity, we live in a way that is radically different to the world. We find our identity from outside ourselves, not self-fulfilment, from God and our place in the church. And what we seek now is no longer self-fulfilment where I am an island which must ward off attack and influence from others. No, instead, what we seek is fulfilment in belonging and loving and serving. You are not an island. You are part, an indispensable part of the body. Your identity and purpose are inseparable from God, but they're also inseparable from the people sitting next to you in the pews today. Finish off. Perhaps you're here and you don't yet know Jesus. Perhaps you're just here checking out what church is like for you. 
let me encourage you to seek Jesus out, to test whether what I'm saying is true or not. Because if it is true, then there's no bigger decision that you can make than to choose to live for him. And that means radically changing your allegiance, who you live for, changing what you live for, who you live for, going from chasing self-fulfilment to finding your place with God and as part of the church. I'm going to leave you with that thought. And it's my prayer that you will seek Jesus because it's my experience and the experience of most people here today that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. After we pray and sing a song, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to what we've been hearing today. Everyone's going to fill out a response form. And I want to encourage you if you're thinking, if you're seeking Jesus and wondering, is this for real? A great way to respond to that is by um, putting your name down to do Alpha or to talk to someone. You'll get a chance to do that with the response form. Let's pray, then we'll get the band up and we'll sing. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you give us a radically different way to live that's not about finding our own fulfilment, not about beating our own path, but that you have shown us our true north. You are our true north that is found in Jesus. We know our value that he died for us. We know our identity that we are created to be his children. We know our sense of belonging and that is with each other in your body in the church please encourage us with that please help us to trust in you in jesus name amen